My name is Mary Conquest. I'm your host for Safety Labs by Slice, the podcast where we explore the human side of safety to support safety professionals. We move past regulations and reportables to talk about the core skills of safety leadership, empathy, influence, trust, rapport, in other words, the soft skills that help you do the hard stuff. I have Professor Tim Marsh here today to talk about the role and the importance of well-being in a culture of safety. Tim Marsh is one of only a few chartered psychologists who are also chartered fellows of the Institute of Occupational Safety and Health. He was a team leader in UK research into behavioral safety in the early 1990s and is considered a world authority on the subject of behavioral safety, safety leadership, and organizational culture. Tim has worked with more than 400 major organizations around the world, including Apple, the European Space Agency, the World Health Organization, and the UN. He's the author of Affective Safety Management, Talking Safety, and Total Safety Culture. I'm pleased to have him here today and excited to hear more about well-being and safety culture. Hi. Hi, Mary. How are you? That ding-dong was my my reminder that we're about to start. (laughs) So you've said in a recent webinar that as recently as two years ago, the link between well-being and safety was a controversial one. Why is that? And how do you think that it's changed? Why is that? Because um, we were very wary, uh, certainly organisations were were very wary of talking about the link between mental health and accidents. You know, it was considered that uh, any any discussion of that seemed to be blaming the victim as opposed to analysing it as a risk factor. And slowly, uh, through uh, understanding the data more clearly, we've realised that actually it's just a huge risk factor, whether you're coming at it from a continuity point of view, resilience point of view, or an individual thriving and and doing well uh, perspective. So that the data here in the UK is that for every worker we kill, 31 workers will take their own lives. You know, and, and when you when you realise that um, for every you know for every person who takes their own life successfully, somebody something like twenty five will try on a given day. You know, and we, we know we know about Heinrich's triangle, so you don't have to extrapolate very far to realise you're talking about a lot of people in work operating heavy machinery, taking really difficult and important decisions, interacting with a whole bunch of colleagues who are really not in a very good place at all. Clearly, that's not ideal. The, the likelihood of them giving you above the line or discretionary effort is bound to be smaller on average than, than a, a, a person having an average day. And, and uh, we argue the likelihood of them having an accident is, is, is higher. Not an awful lot in the way of good quality meta-analysis, but early studies seem to suggest twice as likely. Uh, and, and the factors for that, I mean, you're much more likely to be distracted much less likely to have high levels of situational awareness, you know, both both things we, we, we'd we want to have. Um, you're far more likely to be fatalistic, you know, that kind of, oh, whatever, I don't care. And, of course, you're far more likely to create risk around you by, by doing aggressive, impetuous things, having arguments with people, failing to be a good team player when, when good teamwork is, is, is important for safety. And I think all of those things are utterly self-evident, and as we've done podcasts and given talks and said, look, it's not about blaming the individual at all. It's about understanding that if one in five on any given day is is struggling with their mental health, that is a colossal risk factor. And you can either hope for the best or you can proactively address it. Know that it's there, 
we know from world-class safety culture that what you don't do is cross your fingers. What you do do is you proactively go out and you understand where it is, why it's happening, who it's happening to, and what we can do about it. I just absolutely refute any suggestion that those same principles don't apply to well-being and mental health as they do to safety itself. Speaking about shifting from uh, this idea of individual blame into workplace culture. So workplace culture plays a big role in, in your thinking. And you've spoken about potentially unconscious cues that show cultural priorities that influence people's behavior. So can you give an example and sort of explain why culture is foundational to safety? Sure. Well, I, I, you know, increasingly over the years, we've um, it, it's not a, at all controversial to to suggest that culture is king, you know. And and what we what we talk about is the incredible power of peer pressure, you know. So a simple example, you know, from a utility company I worked with years ago, two weeks in there university to be a fully qualified um, engineer you know so that two weeks once they've qualified they have to do two weeks to be qualified for the company so it's quite an intensive training training session and what we found is that you put them in the back of a van with three experienced guys and they've gone native by lunchtime because you know and, and lots of user-friendly examples that i that, that i won't use here because they're all about sport and, and other things but you know what what you find is no matter what your intentions you tend to react to what you see around you. So uh, a non-controversial one, you pick up a hire car at an airport and you warn, do not speed on our island, I don't know, Cyprus, Trinidad, because we'll we'll nail you uh, and ruin your holiday. And as you hit the motorway, you see a big sign that says 80 kilometres an hour maximum, severe penalties. You're definitely doing 78 kilometres an hour as you you come out. But, you know, as as you drive down the road, what you find is the inside lane is doing 90, the middle lane is doing 100, and it's a free-for-all in the outside lane. You know, and we used to ask the question, well, what speed would you be doing 10 minutes later? But, of course, delegates would say, uh, well, you've got to keep up with flow, haven't you? It's not safe to not keep up with flow. So we found a better question was, how many of you would have used the outside lane within the first half an hour? And as a rule, half the audience put their hand up because you respond not to what it says on the tin or what you've been trained, you respond to what the experienced, confident people around you do, and you take your lead from them, and almost, almost instantly at that, for, for that matter. So, so culture is king because, you know, I was I was involved in Cullen, Cullen two, looking at Labbrook Grove, the train crash, rather than Cullen one, the the Piper Alpha disaster, um, and we came up with a definition, which was, you know, your culture is what is typical or unremarkable on, on a normal day. So it's not what we say it is. It's what actually happens around us on a normal day. That's your culture, and, and culture is king. It's not what's on your safety posters. <laughs> it's not what's so. And and, and you, did, you did ask me a, a two two part question. Actually, um, you have to forgive, forgive your viewers. It is Friday night here in in Manchester. <laughs> the football and the rugby is is on the is on the telly, and uh, I'll, it'll take me a while to, to get up to speed. But. Um, you, you asked me a question, how, how is it conveyed with subtle cues? And, you know, and one of the things we've really understood recently is this whole kind of Kahneman thinking fast, thinking slow, and, and how it's manifest through, through nudge, you know. Behavioral economics is the science of big changes in behavior for small, small inputs. You know, so anybody who's anywhere near behavioral safety or behavioral change should be all over nudge. And, and the sorts of things we, we understand now are, you know, if, if, you know, when you're in a pub, you're, you're divorced, you're dating. And across the table comes, you, you're a really nice guy, Tim, and I've really enjoyed these last couple of weeks. It's been lots of fun. 
but you know, I, I've got my coat on before before they've even finished the sentence. Yeah, because you know that anything before the but in a sentence is just flannel. Everything after the but is the meat of it. So you know, in a, in a safety brief, in a toolbox talk, I want this job doing safely. But by Friday means by Friday as safely as you can. And when those corners are cut and we get unlucky, those workarounds occur and, and we, we run, out of, run out of luck. We all end up being caught, you know, and the, um, the supervisor will say, but I said safely. I very explicitly said safely. And the person on the receiving end is likely to say, well, well yeah, but, you know, and, and it's lost in the mists of time now, isn't it? What, what, what was actually said and how it was conveyed, but conveyed it was. You talked as well about elements of culture. There were three different elements that you mentioned. What are those? And, and can you tell us a bit more about them? Well, I mean, there's a million uh, elements of culture, you know, values, principles, artifacts, God knows what. But, um, you know, you find when you're trying to explain things, you don't want to have anything more than three, you know. Yeah, everything should be down to down in, in threes. And I, I think the three clusters uh, of issues are, n- number one, your systems, your procedures, your rules, your training, all that, good, your, your safety management system, your risk assessments, all the stuff that we go and audit and invest in. Um, and obviously, if you haven't hit diminishing returns with that, there's work to be done. You know, go, go and buy some safety equipment, have, have a, a safety professional who knows what a good safety management system looks like. Get your ISOs. But what you find, of course, is a lot of organizations get from not very good to compliant with their systems. And then they think, well, look, you know, uh, we've got this far with our systems. What we need are more systems and more rules. And, you know, everybody listening to this will have worked in an organization where the rules just proliferated until they actually started getting in each other, you know, getting in the way and diminishing returns is hit. And the workers are saying, oh, no, not more bloody paperwork and and so on. You know, a lot of organizations call it the blob effect. You just keep piling into it and it just gets bigger and bigger. And so once you've hit diminishing returns, you, you really need to address something smarter, like a, a turn left and fo- focus on the human factor. And we think there are two elements of of that. The first one is good old-fashioned empowerment and engagement. To what extent are your workers heads up and switched on? You know, and this, of course, uh, is is a factor of transformational leadership rather than transactional leadership, by by which I mean that they're they're coached rather than told, they're praised rather than criticised. The communications are excellent and clear. So at this point, really good posters and, and really clear paint become become useful toolbox talks that are full of dialogue become useful anything that generally you know it gets a, and of course the classic one that we're seeing in britain at the moment you lead by example because you know we're all leading by example at all times whether we want to be or not so it's a good idea to be doing it well otherwise people get awfully upset and demotivated and angry and think that things are unfair and that's the last thing you want you know unfairness is is the most deadly of all the sort of um, psychosocial issues there are because it completely undermines trust and, and trust is is, is key. Um, so you, you want all that going on and you've got your switched on motivated workers and what you want them doing ideally is learning. And, you know, HSG 48 shows really clearly that when you step back objectively, what you see is that about 80% of what's going wrong out there is structural. It's, uh, it's unintentional mistakes caused by fatigue, lack of training, lack of tools, lack of time, or it's the cultural stuff. 
you know, and we, we've made a start on the cultural stuff. A lot of the cultural stuff is not people just doing what they want to do. It's doing what they think the organization wants for them or, or the best they can. So you, you, you hear things like you can have it quick, you can have it cheap, you can have it good quality. Pick any two. You know, and, and if you cascade that sort of sort of issue down to the workforce, they'll just do the best they can and they'll second guess you. So hardly ever when you step back and look at it, is it just an, an individual off on a folly of their own? And even when it is an individual off on, the fo- on a folly of their own, you know, you, there are questions to be asked. Uh, who, who employed this person? Who trained this person? Who's supervising this person? Who's responsible for sending them out there so demotivated and, and half-cocked? You can't just blame the individual because they've done something daft. And, you know, an ABC analysis shows really, temptation analysis shows really clearly if the Safeway is slow, inconvenient or uncomfortable, then, you know, it's 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 highly tempting to find a workaround and, and crack on. You know, not everybody will. Some people have got great self-control and, and so on, but most of us haven't. And it's just a head count of how many people do cut that corner um, and risk mounts up and, and, and people get hurt. And of course, if it's something that looks a bit daft at a glance, it's really easy to blame people then and say, well, you cut the corner, you knew what you were doing. You know, but, but yes, but I was really tired. I was getting to the odds at the end of a long shift. I'm absolutely desperate for a cup of coffee. <laughs> and I just I just couldn't resist that little corner cut just, just to try and have 10 minutes to re- re- regain my breath. So, so when you step back, there's so much you can learn. And of course, the classic one is instead of shouting, why have you done that? You ask the question, why did you do that? Because because nine times out of 10, Curious Why has got a good answer. And so the, the, the final of the three pieces for me is is learning. I think uh, Carol Dweck, uh, she's from your neck of the woods, I think, you know, who wrote the, the best-selling book, Mindset, sold three million copies or, or whatever. And, and the essence of that book is that she says her best best ever boss asks three questions. What's going wrong? Why is it going wrong? What are we going to do about it? You know, and then if you cross-reference that to somebody like Andrew Hopkins, the Australian writer, who wrote some fabulous books like Failure to Learn and Disastrous Decisions, you know, and his mindful safety concept, which which uh, his mindful safety concept is any complex organization is chock full of risk and mistakes every day. Now, you know, the weaker organizations wait for those mistakes to blow up into something that finds us the better organizations proactively go out there and try and find what's going wrong as quickly and as proactively as possible. That, that, that's my three, three things. Energized workers being asked, why, why is that going wrong? <laughs> yeah, you've, you've spoken about the importance of situational awareness. And actually, you had a, an excellent metaphor, well, not even a metaphor, but um, example of this in the 1955 Le Mans 24-hour race disaster, right? I'd like you to talk about that, but I, I also wanted to ask, standard planning around risk is flawed, is something that you you have said. We all know that situational awareness is important, but standard planning around it isn't great. And and you've talked about this as the, the model of human error. So can you talk a little bit about situational awareness as well as understanding human error a little bit better? The, the example you, you you've obviously seen is is the the, the Le Mans race. Uh, Juan Fangio, he's driving a Mercedes. He's I think he's twice a world champion on the way to winning five in seven years, something like that. And uh, so obviously the big star, you know, the Lewis Hamilton of his day. And uh, in that that race, uh, there's a serious incident. I think eighty five people were killed. 
and he could have driven into the back of it. Uh, it was obviously a horrendous uh, collision, but he didn't. And afterwards, people said to him, well, how on, how on earth did you manage to not drive into the back of that? It was a blind corner. You know, you came, you slowed. Uh, how did you know to slow? Uh, and the way he, uh, he explained it was he said, well, look, you know, I, I'm Fangio, big star. I'm driving a bright silver Mercedes at 200 miles an hour. And I noticed that nobody in the crowd was looking at me. So I knew something had happened. That's, that's pretty pretty switched on, isn't it? To be, yeah, at <laughs> those speeds. I'd, just be, I'd have my eyes closed and let me scream. But, <laughs> but, but you know, uh, that, that, that level of situational awareness is, is not easy to get to. Obviously, he's experienced, he's, he's in flow, he's in focus and, and so on. You know, and of course, a lot of organizations will say, if only everybody could be like that, you know, if, if you do get to the end of the of the, the run of events from bad decisions to bad maintenance to bad supervision to bad behaviour, you'd be alert and you and you could nip it in the right at the end there and, and block the last of the cheese, you know, reasons cheese model. But of course, we can't do that because even a, a person who is absolutely switched on is going to be away with the fairies for about five minutes an hour. It's, it's a physiological limitation. It's why sports in, in, in the UK, because we have soccer, and that's 45 minutes long. Rugby's 40 minutes long. TV programs tend to be 50 minutes long. It's because that's really our, how long we can concentrate comfortably, you know, is, is about 50 minutes. So even if you've got no issues going on at all, you, you've slept well, you've got no relationship worries, you've got no financial worries, your kids are, kids are thriving, you get on with your boss, you enjoy your job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're not on medication of any, of any type you're still probably going to spend five minutes an hour away with the fairies. And, and of course, if you come across a trip hazard, you might trip over it. So people be, being exhorted to always pay full attention, always keep an eye on what you're doing, you know, always be bright and alert, has got a limited efficacy. You know, it's, if you've got 10,000 workers, five minutes an hour by times 10,000 workers is an awful lot of zombie time. And, and so what we found is a much better approach is to say, look, in the 55 minutes when you're bright and alert, if you see a trip hazard, stop and tidy it up so that it's not there to trip over when you come back around the corner 20 minutes from now away with the fairies. You know, the, the second approach is just much more effective. And uh, when we start talking about human error, of course, not everybody is in that five minutes away with the fairies an hour. You know, and uh, they're, they're, you know, we have a, a, a model, it's a circle with a little sliver of like five minutes, a little blue sliver representing five minutes. And, you know, when we put up the big blue sliver, that's more like a 20 minute, you know, uh, away with the fairies. And we say, how many of you have days that look a lot like this? You know, most people in the room will say, yeah, I have days like that. I certainly have hours like that. You know, I've stayed up too late the night before. I went to my pub quiz. I'm a bit hungover. I got through the morning on coffee. I had a heavy lunch to soak up, you know, what was left of last night's booze. And for between two o'clock and three o'clock, there could have been an alien invasion and I'd have struggled to to, to notice or care, you know. <laughs> That's a pretty common uh, sleepy time of day. <laughs> and, and you know, this, uh, then there's shift work and uh, and all the rest of the stuff, you know. You said something that I found interesting. Goals should be less about making good people into great people and more about keeping average people upright. Can you explain what you mean by that? 
James Reason, who's the godfather of all this stuff, another mank. And while I'm in Manchester as I speak, and hence the uh, the Emily Pankhurst mug from, from my, my, one of my daughters. And James Reason is, uh, you know, the, the great godfather of, of all this stuff. And he came up with his golden rules of human error. The last one was, you know, we need to make good people great. You know, not, not really for me to contradict James Reason, but... Um, <laughs> but uh, but I'm about to. <laughs> because, um, you know, it's a, that's great. And, and obviously, we, we, we want to try and make good people great. But for me, the vast majority of the accidents and the problems we encounter in work and, and the bigger, bigger barrel to shoot at is to keep average people on an average day and not let them slide back into something something worse you know so it's keeping joe average upright and focused and safe and switched on and engaged not not about the elite you know it's not about fighter pilots for me it's about the engineers who who maintain who maintain the the uh, the plane you also had some thoughts about mental health first aiders now i'm not as familiar with sort of the culture of safety and and of safety management and how it's developed. But I imagine that's a relatively recent adoption in workplaces is to have mental health first aiders. But you have a particular point of view about them that I'd like you to share. Uh, yeah, I, you'll see me joke about my, my first uh, week's work. Well, in, in the UK, I don't know what it's like in, in Canada. Certainly around the world, there are mental health first aiders. The whole idea was, was uh, you know, came up with in, in Australia, a long way from the UK. And also makes in mind another another initiatives are all Australian uh, as it happens, and it's a big thing now in the UK. Mental health first aiders. You go on a two day training course and you get your badge that says you you, you are aware and you know you, you're taught to to intervene and signpost and uh, and so on. That's great. Uh, you know, it certainly doesn't hurt and certainly helps a lot if done well. But what we're finding a bit like the, the battle days of behavioural safety. 30 years ago, a behavioral safety course might be, listen to somebody like Tim, he's going to give you a lecture to tell you how important behavior is and some some good examples. Now, just pay full attention. Don't forget that. And off you go. And that's it. That's our behavioral safety program. There's the, the magic bullet, silver dip thing. And, and I think what we're finding in the UK certainly is a lot of organizations are sending 5% of their staff on, on uh, mental health first aid courses. And then what they're doing is they're saying, well, we've got it covered. That's our mental health problem covered. And and the example uh, is a guy called Chris uh, Chris German. He's a thought leader for IOSH, actually, at, at the moment. It was, he was working for me at the time. And he said, you know, he, he, we, we talked about steelworks. And, oh, I work in the steelworks. So it's, it's, it's a slightly hypothetical example. Uh, my, my, my first week's work in, in, the, in the late 1970s, I wanted to imagine that my mum took me in. Actually, I, I rode in on my motorbike, as it happens. But imagine my mum takes me in. And it's Lamborn Steelworks. And as, as she drops me off, the, uh, the supervisor says, oh, you know, thanks, thanks, Mrs. Marsh, you know. Uh, now, it's true, we have hot metal splashing around all over. We have, we have noxious gases in all the buildings. We have forklift trucks charging up and down like it's, it's a Grand Prix. And uh, we have a horrible bullying management culture in there. But don't worry about it. Tim will be fine with us because we've got four highly skilled first aiders in there. And uh, they'll look after him for you. You know, and, and obviously the point is she she shouldn't have been spectacularly uh, reassured by that, <laughs> and and nor should we. You know, we don't want to be looking at having mental health first aiders as the solution. We want to be proactively looking at what we're doing to our workers that they might need a mental health first aider in the first place, and proactively 
trying to create a culture that is strong and empowering and, and gives you the benefit of good work is, is good for you. Because people who enjoy their work and, and, and find their work rewarding are mentally healthier than people that don't need to work at all. Well, that's that leads me into my next question, which is really the big question. What can organizations do to, to make meaningful changes, you know, more than just sort of a backup like a mental first aider? But not that that's a bad first step, but but more meaningful changes uh, once they accept some of these concepts that we've been talking about. Well, I mean, the first thing, of course, you have to do is is you have to do the reactive stuff, just like we have to have accident investigations and, and fines for people who uh, and, and so on, is is to, to spot, actively spot that people are hitting critical. And when, when you when you look at these these issues, we all of us, um, we all of us have bad days. You know, um, 85 percent is, is depression and, and anxiety. You know, we're talking about mental health. And that is really depression is merely really if you if you talk to a cognitive behavioral therapist, depression is merely thinking about things that have happened in a negative way, which we all do. It's a, so it's a continuum. Whereas anxiety is thinking about things that haven't happened yet in a negative way, you know. And, and a behavioral therapist would say, look, you know, it's every minute you spend doing one or the other, and unless the depression stuff is is about as a, a spur to learning, but every minute you spend thinking negatively steals a minute from you to do something more, more positively, you know, especially with the anxiety. It steals a minute from you to work towards making whatever it is you're worried about less, less likely to happen. So it's a continuum. But I, like everything else, once we, we, we get to the stage where that's getting in the way and, we'll, and it's going to get worse, you know, with a, with a, with a risk to ourselves, I mean, it might be a risk to our colleagues, we might get to the stage where we're, we're off. You know, initially, we know that we'll be off with a bad back. 80% of people who are off with bad backs are actually off with mild depression uh, and anxiety and, and all those other studies. So we don't want that to happen. And we certainly don't want them to have a florid breakdown and be off for months. So spotting them and then pointing them in the direction of employee assistance uh, and other or the Samaritans or another other issues is a really good thing to do. Now, mental health first aiders, of course, can be really useful for that. But if you put absolutely everybody through mental health awareness training and, and the training we do now for organizations on human factors has, this is the top five things you need to do for this. And these are the five things you need to look for. So it's really easy to, to blend into good old fashioned human error training around HSG 48 and so on. But if you've got everybody doing it, you don't really need mental health first aiders at all. So that's a very long winded way of saying, but the second thing is we want to be proactive we want to create an environment that keeps people in the middle, keeps people away from critical naturally because they actually find work, work empowering. If I could go off to the side, I did a job for an organization um, a, couple of, a couple of months ago and I was working with the board. It's only a re- relatively small company. Um, and I said, look, you know, good work is good for you. You know, sometimes having a good job is the only thing that keeps you upright. There's only six of us in the room. The head of HR just said, yeah. That resonates. Yeah. Bang. And we had to have half an hour off. And when we got back, um, I said to the CEO, well, would you do your talk? You know, um, I, I'd really like you to talk about this. Big guy, ex-rugby player, six foot four, super confident, pretty intimidating kind of guy, you know. So I'm not doing it. So, oh, he said, well, I'll stand on the stage, but I can't I can't talk in public. I'm too anxious. <laughs> it's like, oh, geez, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's that... Creating a job that really, really keeps you 
energized, gives you a reason to ping out of bed in the morning, you know? Oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And we know what, what, we know what that looks like, you know? Uh, a guy called Paul Zak, a modern writer, is kind of a variation on, on that famous book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Covey, wasn't it? I was going to say, I can't, Stephen Covey. But, but 30 years ago at Sheffield University, a guy called Peter Waugh wrote about the uh, vitamin model of mental health at work. And he, he identified nine factors um, that determine how mentally healthy you are at work or, or how, how good that job might be for your mental health. So we've known about it for 30 years, but of course, 30 years ago, <laughs> the only people who paid any attention were students and, and did a few master's research projects. But now, of course, we're, we're using those, those questions. So when we talk through leaders, things you should ask for, we, we can cover wars, wars factors. So a very simple example, interpersonal contact. Some people like lots of interpersonal contact. Some people don't like very much interpersonal contact at all, but absolutely everybody wants it to be good quality. Or something like or autonomy. You know, so some people love working from home, other people hate it. And uh, autonomy is a, is, is a really good example. You know, we, as a rule, we like a bit of autonomy. Now, some people like a lot of autonomy. You know, if you like a lot of autonomy, you can only really function in society as a self-employed person. You know, <laughs> a lot of people listening to this podcast, if they had the level of autonomy that I've enjoyed over the last 30 years, they'd never sleep. So it's about tailoring the job and the task to the individual best you can. You know, other people have a really high NAC, you know, need for achievement, and they really want to be on training courses and they want to be developing their skills and using their creativity. And other people have got a really no, low NAC and they just want to be left alone to do a reasonably straightforward job, you know? Yeah, I, I think people like different amounts of structure. And uh, another guest I was speaking to saying, you know, some some people don't want to make the decisions that are required to... Uh, to be a safety manager, they don't want to make the tough calls. That they're quite happy within a, a more predictable framework. So yeah, know thyself, know your workers. I suppose. Yeah, you know, and, and there's if you go on a mental health first aid course, they'll talk you through windows on the world, and there's just like a three, three, three like an onion. You know, core. Who are you at core? Your values, your family. You know, you know other stuff where you work and sexuality and and, and so on. And, and and how can you use it on a training course? Is to say, look, you know, individuals are infinitely complex and infinitely different. You know, we're not going to go through this whole model. Just remember, the next time you talk to somebody else, they're not you. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's what it comes down to. And you can't tell who they are by looking at them. You're going to have to talk to them and. <laughs> And see 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 what they think, see what they like, and and so uh, I'm, I'm rabbiting on ten to the dozen here. I know to, to try and uh, try and get some stuff across, but you know, being a good listener is it seems to be absolutely core to everything. So any any good training course, whether it's mental health first aider, safety leadership, human error leadership, which is what we do these days, active listening is core. I have a few more questions. One. I- one is, so you've talked about what organizations can do to make meaningful changes. What about individuals? So if an, an individual OHS professional sees the need for cultural change, and I would assume in this example, if this individual sees the need, then maybe they're, maybe they're the only one who sees it or the first one who sees it. How would you recommend they go about trying to make a way forward, trying to affect some kind of change? 
Oh well, I, I obviously buy all my books and and, and give them <laughs> <laughs> give them to the C suite. I well, you know, I, I don't want to be too cynical, but you know, when when they when they're looking for inspiration, when they, when they need to make a change and it's looking unpromising, you know, my my business partner, a guy called Jason Anker. He's Europe's leading inspirational speaker. He, 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 unfortunately, back in the early 1990s, he, he fell off a ladder and paralyzed himself and, and, and is now acknowledged as Europe's leading in, inspirational speaker. A lot of organizations will get Jason in, put everybody in a, in a hangar uh, or a canteen and say, listen to Jason, and he slay them with his, with his talk about what, he's, what he went through, what he put his family through, subsequent suicide attempts because of mental health crisis, all this sort of stuff. Although now he finishes really positively because he's, he's thriving at the moment and really enjoying his work, but that's, that's a different matter. But, you know, when you're trying to create an impression, an inspirational speaker seems like a good idea. And, and, but it's the, same as, it's the same as the mental health first aiders thing. You know, we've done that. They've all had the talk. Half the audience were in tears. They all filed out in silence, going, "Oh, I'll never make a take an air, you know, uh, take a shortcut ever again." And then two weeks later, the environment has put you straight back where you were, and you, you've got a week's benefit out of it. I, I think for you know, if you're a if you're a safety professional and you're really struggling to get the C-suite to listen to you, you've got to go in with the win-win stuff. You've got to be able to articulate the figures. You know, so um, if you've got a, if you've got a workforce, so we, we talked about mental health before, and the figures are just astronomical. You know, and I know they're sim- similar in Canada as they are to the UK. I, I, I did look it up. You know, we we lose five thousand people to suicide, four thousand of work of working age, which is a ratio of thirty one to one compared to people we kill in industrial accidents. And as I said earlier, you know, for everyone who completes suicide, you you will have something like two dozen will have tried it on the day. And, an, and, an, and another factor, again, three times that many, so 100 or so, will be planning it. You know, So if you've got a workforce of 10,000 people, and we talk about one in four in a year, one in five uh, at any given time, that is a colossal risk factor for, for you. And you don't have to, you know, obviously suicide is, is still relatively, uh, even with those figures, it's still relatively uh, infrequent. In but you... If you have a workforce that's unhappy, you know, that if you have a culture that's quite toxic and unsupportive and a workforce that are not really particularly engaged, you can guarantee you've got all sorts of people out there just going through the motions. You've almost certainly got a high absenteeism rate. You'll almost certainly have a high turnover of your best staff. And it'll be the best ones that go quickest, of course, because they can. You won't be attracting the best staff in because you'll have a bad reputation, you know, and these days online, everybody knows everything. I mean, it doesn't have to be down the pub where somebody says, oh, you don't want to work there. It's everywhere, isn't it? You'll almost certainly have, as I say, absenteeism rates will be high. Presenteeism rates will be high. You know, that whole thing about I'm just going to get between you and five o'clock, you know, as, as quietly as I can. You know, I, I, Lambourne Steelworks, I, I said I worked there. There was, they had, we had a makeshift barracks in Lambourne Steelworks. I never got to use it because I didn't stay more than a week. But you would go in for the night shift. You'd take a sleeping bag with you. When you'd go into the barracks, people would cover you, and you'd just sleep through the night. That was a, that's, that's presenteeism. <laughs> that's, that's a fairly extreme example. <laughs> I, actually, I actually worked at a radio station where the station manager, now this is a college station, so not as much scrutiny, Put on something. Put on some album on a loop and just went to sleep in the studio because he just he couldn't make it through. 
This was a university station. I imagine he had been cramming for exams or perhaps doing something more fun than that. I don't know, but... But anyway, you know, in the old days, we did presenteeism better than these young ones. You know? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> so, you know, and, and of course, you've got your above the line behavior, citizenship behavior, all that lovely stuff that we want, creativity, helping new starts, putting yourself out, going the extra mile, whatever you want to call it, all that stuff that you get if you've got a switched on motivated workforce. Well, you're not getting it if, if you've got a, a workforce that's really hanging and and demotivated you know and of course one of the things we're talking about here is good old-fashioned productivity and customer service and and quality assurance clearly all of that is compromised if you've got a workforce that hates you yeah so it's not just about it's not just about frankly being a a good person and wanting to have a, a happy workforce but there's a business case there's a very clear business case for you know healthy workers no, absolutely. It's it's clearly a win-win, you know. And uh, one of my books finishes with a cartoon. It's a, it's it's a it's a, it's a pastiche of, of the famous Monty Python scene, you know. And uh, you you got a guy saying, "Well, uh, so you know, our, fewer of our best workers leaving, less absenteeism, less presenteeism, more above the line behaviour, more productivity." You know, why else would we, should we worry about the well-being of our workforce, you know? And there's like little black shadows in the front. And I there's a joke that one of the little black shadows says, well, fewer accidents and better mental health, Reg. You know, <laughs> well, fewer accidents and better mental health taken as Reg. No need to self-evident, you know, no need to mention that. You know, and, and, and it's, it's that there is a business case. And, and, and you know, there's all sorts of study, you know, studies now quoting twice as productive and this and that, you know, and a third less likely to lose your best staff and all, all these other all these other figures. And, and I mean, my experience is, unless you've just killed somebody and everybody's feeling really quite focused on, on the human factor, um, you really need to hit senior management with the, with the win-win data because otherwise they're not going to listen to you because they're busy. At the very least, they're busy. They've got lots of other things to do. They've got shareholders to worry about. They got their, And, of course, a, a fifth of them will be hanging by a thread because they've got mental health of issues. Of course, of course, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the first thing they want is a new difficult project to roll out. <laughs> but they will if they think it's a really good thing to do uh, for the shareholders, for their career, for their workers. And you have to make the business case, I think. Okay, well, I have a few more questions I ask these to, to every guest. They're just a bit of fun. The University of Tim, if you were to develop your own safety management training curriculum, where would you start? And I realize that the answer is probably everything we've just talked about, but which core human skill do you think is the most important to develop in tomorrow's safety professionals? Oh, goodness. Um, as you say, though, I mean, uh, obviously, I, I do get to write training courses. <laughs> yes, <books>. yeah. <laughs> it's not a hypothetical. <laughs> so, so um, you know, the, my books that are in universities, I, I, I've just described for the safety professional. I, I think the book that I would point them at first is Matthew Said's Black Box Thinking. I think it's the most important book written about safety. It's not. It's not written about safety, although although safety is a, is a recurring theme. A black box thinking by Matthew Said, you know, along with things like um, Bad Science by by Ben Goldacre. You know, if you if you read, there's only three or four books you need to read, and you and you and you've got graduate level thinking straight away. And and one of them I think is Matthew Said's Black Box Thinking, and he compares and contrasts aviation. 
and their approach to learning. And he compares and contrasts that with hospitals. You know, you, you might not know this, but if you take North America and Europe combined, hospitals kill about a million people a year, you know, from infections, from medical errors and so on. And you'd think, given that data, that they would be fabulous at proactively learning and understanding what about their mistakes and sharing that knowledge, and they're useless. You know, um, no offense if you if you if you work in other industry, but but you are. And uh, James Reason did a fantastic podcast about this. You know, and, and organisations that understand that actually they're going to make lots of mistakes, and what what you need to do is not be defensive about it, but just like Andrew Hopkins says, know these things are coming and try and get in front of them as best you can. And, and Matthew Said's book really makes the case well with lots of really user-friendly examples. Um, and it makes the case basically that the countries, societies, species go forward fastest when they have a really good objective analytical approach to learning. So you've actually answered uh, one of my other questions. I'll ask it again in case something else comes up. But I was going to ask for your your best, most practical tips or resources for safety managers looking to improve their work relationships or their core skills. So that could be a book, and you've mentioned several just now, a website, a concept. Are there any other that come to mind? Because you have already kind of answered the question. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I, I genuinely think um, soft skills, you know, we we all know that there are lots and lots of people out there who've got IOSH qualifications, NEBOSH qualifications, uh, and and so on. Being effective is all about your soft skills, really. So um, anybody looking to develop themselves as an individual really wants to to, um, be on as many courses as they can for active listening skills, how to give negative feedback why being a monitor evaluator is a fantastic thing, but only if you've got high levels of soft skills because otherwise you're really annoying. I don't know if you know the monitor evaluator is the person who who hovers above the group and has a really good idea of whether they're going wrong or not. You know, so that they're, they're almost always right, but the way they convey that correct thinking can make all the difference in the world. <laughs> a little bit of a coaching style. Hey, can I just ask, are we still heading for that ultimate aim that we that we put on the board earlier is one way and we've gone wrong again is is <laughs> is another so so soft skills make, make all the difference in the world to being able to apply your technical skills and uh, I, I again i i think he might be canadian is, he, is goldman canadian i think he is daniel goldman he wrote a book called emotional intelligence i, I think he makes the case uh, I, I think i remember this correctly mary that you know if if you correlate people coming out of law class with uh you know uh, and over your side of the pond you, you you'd like to know where you are in the class we don't we don't here <laughs> you know you either get a first a two one or a two two and that's but you know where, where you finish in your class that doesn't correlate at all well with success as, as a lawyer for example but if you can assess their emotional intelligence as they graduate that does correlate incredibly well with um, um, with success, and and the same the same is true with safety. Really, I mean, obviously, you need to pass the law degree for this to apply. So there's a bar that you have to jump, you know, before before you're even in the game. But in the world of safety, again, just having a good qualification is not as useful to you once you've got it as as being able to convince people about what you know and to be able to be nuanced and subtle about your thinking because the world is a nuanced, subtle, difficult, political, annoying, corrupt, 
dysfunctional uh, <laughs> place, isn't it? And, and and being able to navigate your way through all that requires all sorts of skills that are not just on, in a certificate. So I, I'd, I'd, I'd strongly suggest anything you can do that, that, that improves your soft skills or non-technical skills, we're trying to call them now, isn't it? Because they, we don't say soft because it implies weak, you know, it's a... I, I like to call them core skills, actually, because I think that's just a personal preference, not a because, well, for obvious reasons, right? They they really are core to your success, and that goes beyond safety. Well, I, I, in, in the relationships and things, you know. So I wish I had a pen for everybody, uh, for every time I've been, been accused of being a bad listener. <laughs> <laughs> so our last question let's turn back time for a minute if you could travel back in time and speak to yourself at the beginning of your career perhaps this is 16 year old you on your motorbike and you could give young tim one piece of advice what would it be oh well actually do you know i wouldn't because as it turns out i i, I left school at 16 I, uh, I i didn't get on with school very well it wasn't a very good school and uh I left under a bit of a cloud. Um, and then I had a succession of jobs, none of which I enjoyed at all, and none of which I was interested in. I was convinced I was going to be a golf professional for a long time until I realized I wasn't dedicated enough at that either. But what it turned out to be was a fabulous apprenticeship for being an occupational psychologist. Um, so I wasn't paying attention to loading the vans at Woolworths and working as a teller for the NatWest Bank and all the rest of the stuff that I did. I, I wasn't paying any attention at all. I, I just thought, oh, God, I don't like this very much. But as it turns out, it turned out to be absolutely fabulous, entirely unintentional apprenticeship for being an occupational psychologist. But that was luck. That was that was sheer luck. That was that was by accident and not design. I would say luck, luck and inclination, right? Because uh, no, um, no, it was no. sheer luck. Absolutely okay. sheer. Right. You know, because um, I, I was as an occupational psychologist, I, I wasn't even enjoying doing that very much. Because once you've done a development centre for managers, you've done a development centre for managers. But a, a guy called Dominic Cooper, who was over in America, uh, who was next door to me, was running the big project on the construction sites for behavioral safety and i just finished looking at suicide in in army recruits my phd dominic had a big argument with the um, the department about some t- t- technical issues and, and and decided not not to continue and go off on his own which you know has thrived ever since but they were desperate for somebody to step in and i happened to play touch rugby with a professor who needed a replacement i said well you, you just work with army recruits you can go on a construction site without getting eaten so, you know, could you just stand in for a month? So, oh, yeah, go on, then it's a favour for you, Ivan. And, of course, I loved it. I just absolutely loved it. And it was so much more fun working on a construction site and looking at safety on a construction site than it was dealing with yet another group of managers. So I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, and because I'm, I'm in safety, I'm working with the front line often. People who work in nuclear power plants, people who drive trains for a living, people who fly fly planes for a living, uh, you know, uh, people who run data centers, uh, oil rigs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it was it was pure luck. Um, so my advice would be: uh, read Matthew Said's Black Box Thinking. Realize that keeping your head up, <laughs> looking around, and seeing what you can learn as you travel along is really useful because you never know when it'll come in handy. So. If our listeners would like to look you up, where will they find you on the web? Certainly your books. 
I'm uh, I'm too old for all that social media stuff. It, <laughs> it, uh, it drives me up the wall, and and I, I can't conceive that anybody needs to hear from me twice a day about what I had for breakfast and and, and God knows what. So my, my books are on Amazon. The new one, uh, and, and thanks for the opportunity to the, the new one. I did one about ten years ago, twelve, fourteen years ago, Christ, called uh, Talking Safety, which was if you just do one thing do this, go out and have a really good two-way dialogue uh, about safety with, with the front line. And that, that did well. And, and the new version of it is talking health and safety, which is talking all about, all, all about this mental health stuff and well-being uh, and, and really embracing the new move that we've, this new front that, we, that we've got in the, in the safety world where we're really looking at the individual, as, as we've discussed. So the new book, Talking Health and Safety, I'm developing an empowered workforce in a post-COVID world, or something like that. That's 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 the new one. That's on Amazon. And uh, if you if you Google me, Tim Marsh Safety, there's, there's quite a few clips and articles, uh, SHP Online and Irish Magazine and and things like that. They can and my company, which does work and and has done work in Canada, uh, Anchor and Marsh, Anchor with a K, not a CH, AnchorandMarsh.com. Obviously, we, we do training, frontline leadership training and cultural assessment, as, as we've discussed. And, and uh, I'm certainly happy to come to Canada to do it, especially if it could be somewhere like my, my, somewhere nice like Vancouver. Be, <laughs> one of the world's most beautiful cities. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, a lot of interesting ideas for people to think about, uh, our international audience. And yeah, we just really appreciate your thoughts. Safety Labs is created by Slice, the only safety knife on the market with a finger-friendly blade. Find us at sliceproducts.com. Until next time, stay safe.